All right, this morning, we're going to get into what is God really like. Last week, we were talking about uh, the misconceptions that we have, we have of God or what other people may have in their, pa- in their mindset of who they perceive God to be and God's character. So today, I want to get into the good news. But before we do, a small devotional from Henry Nouwen called Burnout. Aren't you like me, hoping that some person thing or event will come along to give you that final feeling of inner well-being you desire? Don't you often hope, may this book or idea, course, trip, job, country, or relationship fulfill my deepest desire? But as long as you are waiting for that mysterious moment, you will go on running helter-skelter, always anxious and restless, always lustful and angry, never fully satisfied. You know that this is the compulsiveness that keeps us going and busy, but at the same time makes us wonder whether we are getting anywhere in the long run. This is the way to spiritual exhaustion and burnout. Psalm 61, O God, listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I cry to you for help when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the towering rock of safety. And this is for all of us today, especially with what I was sharing earlier about our personal struggles, stresses, opinions. This is about surrender. (laughs) I hope that hits your heart like it did mine. We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want this with all their hearts, to know the source of it. Hmm. That's pretty good. That's a good lesson I have had to learn, and when I saw this, I'm thinking, okay, I'm still learning this. I'm still growing in this, because the last 20 years, and I've been a pastor for 30, 31 years, something like that, um, but each time we come up with a belief or a shift in what we, we now see and uncover and unveil, uh, we want to tell people about it, but how we do it can sometimes be really <laughs> unhelpful, and so... I hope that hits your heart, especially as we begin to talk about this God we say we believe in and how we perceive God. And sometimes we want to point out other people's incorrect lenses, and we may not be the ones to do that, nor should we. So unless asked for our gentle opinion. Everyone lives their lives based on their concept of who they think God is. Everyone does. So let's get into some good news Your Heavenly Father never condemns you. This is really important to remember. Any condemning voice you hear does not come from the Holy Spirit. Ever. Sometimes it comes through people. (laughs) It's never from God. It will rob you of intimacy and trust with God if you perceive him this way. It's really hard to cozy up to someone if you think they're always mad at you or doesn't even like you. Absolutely true. Does that make sense? There's three key stories in the, in the uh, parables. The, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. The lost sheep is, an, is a quick one. 
you know, there are 99, there's 100 sheep, one gets lost, and the shepherd leaves the 99 behind, goes, finds that one sheep, and brings them back, and celebrates. It's an important part of the theme here, and celebrates. The sheep always belonged to the fold. It was the shepherd's sheep. We forget that. The lost coin. The lady loses her one coin, searches her house, goes crazy, finds it, and has a party and celebrates. Another reminder of an important theme. Did the coin ever lose its value? No. Did it have an owner? Yes, the whole time. And now we come to the prodigal son, probably the most famous, and it too ends with a celebration, kind of a theme. I'm going to read to you this from the Passion Translation. It's a longer read, but bear with me. It's a great story, and this is from a translation that I don't think I've read the entire story from this translation before, but we're so used to hearing it in all the other translations, it's time to hear through another lens, and maybe it'll create a, a, a wider understanding of the story as we read. Instead of calling it the prodigal son, this particular transi- translation calls it the loving father which I think is the more accurate subtitle. By the way, those subtitles are put there by translators. It's not in the original languages, just a heads up. Neither are those little numbers, <laughs> just, just so you know. <laughs> then Jesus said, once there was a father with two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, Father, don't you think it's time to give me the share of your estate that belongs to me? <laughs> How well would that go over in your family today? (laughs) It wouldn't. Uh, Okay. So the father went ahead and distributed among the two sons their inheritance. Shortly afterward, the younger son packed up all of his belongings, traveled off to see the world. He journeyed to a far-off land where he soon wasted all that was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. With everything spent and nothing left, he grew hungry, for there was a severe famine in the land. So he begged a farmer in that country to hire him. The farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. The son was so famished, he was willing to even eat the slop given to the pigs, because no one would feed him a thing. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing. And he thought, there are many workers at my father's house who have all the food they want with plenty to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go back home to my father's house. Oh, and and I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to be called your son. Please, Father, just treat me like one of your employees. So the young son set off for home. From a long distance away, his father saw him coming, dressed as a beggar. And great compassion swelled up in his heart for his son who was returning home. So the father raced out to meet him. He swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly, and kissed him over and over and over with tender love. Then the son said, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I could never deserve to be called your son. 
Just let me. And the father interrupted and said, son, you're home now. Turning to his servants, the father said, quick, bring the best robe, my very own robe, and I'll place it on his shoulders. Oh, bring the ring, the seal of sonship, and I'll put it on his finger. Oh, and bring the best shoes you can find for my son. Let's prepare a great feast and celebrate for this beloved son of mine once dead, but now he's alive again. Once he was lost, but now is found. And everyone celebrated with overflowing love. I can't help but think of that song. Celebrate good times. Come on. Anyway, just kidding. Now the older son was out working in the field when his brother returned. And as he approached the house, he heard the music of celebration and dancing. So he called over one of his servants and asked, what is going on? The servant replied, it's your younger brother. He's returned home and your father's throwing a party to celebrate his homecoming. The older son became angry and refused to go in and celebrate. So his father came out and pleaded with him. Come and enjoy the feast with us. And the son said, father, Listen, how many years have I been working like a slave for you, performing every duty you've asked as a faithful son, and I've never once disobeyed you, but you're, you've never thrown a party for me because of my faithfulness. Never once have you even given me a goat that I could feast on and celebrate with my friends like he is doing now. But look at this son of yours. He comes back after wasting your wealth on prostitutes and reckless living, and here you are throwing a great feast to celebrate for him. And the father said, my son, you are always with me by my side. Everything I have is yours to enjoy. It's only right to celebrate like this and be overjoyed because this brother of yours, <laughs> did you see that? That was a good move, was once dead and gone, but now he's alive and back with us again. He was lost, but now is found. The prodigal son, the one we call the prodigal son, was miserable after he foolishly sinned. The older brother was miserable after he faithfully served. But the parable is about the father, the loving father. Usually, the story of the prodigal son highlights all the bad stuff, sensationalizes everything he did wrong. Oh, religion does that. Focuses on everything that's wrong. Oh, they're great at pointing out what's wrong. The older brother did that. He resembles religion. He pointed everything out. He had this wussy little hissy fit. It's all about me, 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 me. His age suddenly was revealed when he said, you've never thrown me a party. You can hear a little child do that. How come he gets better? How come his piece is bigger than mine? Like, that's the maturity level here. It's awful. Adults, we do the exact same thing. We just, how come he gets so much? We just find better wording, but it's the same immature attitude. 
So what can we learn from this? Well, let's look at the word prodigal for a minute. A couple years ago I shared this with you, and I think this is brilliant. When I discovered what the word prodigal means, I thought, oh my goodness, this is cool. It means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully, extravagant. Prodigal habits die hard. Or having or giving something on a lavish scale. The dessert was crunchy with brown sugar and the prodigal with whipped cream. You can imagine a lavish prodigal dessert. Yes, you can imagine it, can't you? You can almost taste it. It's almost lunchtime. No, it's not, but too bad. But here's the good news. If this is what prodigal means, and the son was called the prodigal son because he lavishly, lavishly spent, who do you think was the prodigal before he had that money? The father. The father prodigally gave to his son lavishly, freely, irresponsibly. And not only at the beginning when it was asked for the money, he was even more lavish when the son came back. Again, having a party, lavishly. This is the character of God. This is the character. Jesus came to correct the faulty images of God that the Jews had been hearing for centuries from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Maybe, just maybe the son was far more like his father than we've ever given him credit for. <laughs> Lavish, like father, like son. And then you have the other son. The prodigal son, he doesn't return home because he's renewed his love for his father. It says he came to his senses. He woke up, usually out of desperation, but really he comes home simply to survive because he ran out of money and is starving. And his father is perfectly fine with that. What's with that? His ulterior motive was, I just want to have food, not necessarily be in relationship. Even, even in his speech, he's got it all planned. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just treat me like a servant. He did say he was wrong. That's cool. But here we have a loving father saying, I just want you home. You're loved no matter what. No matter where you go, you are loved by your heavenly father. No matter what choices you make, no matter what mistakes you've made and are going to make, you're loved. This is a big lesson for parents. Behavior is different than identity. We need to tell our children, our teens, our young adults, one another, when we say, when we're dealing with an issue of bad behavior, sometimes we say, you are bad. No. The behavior was unbecoming of their true identity. But they, the true them, is good, holy, pure, righteous, and the light of Christ shines through them, and Christ lives in them. That is how we deal with stuff. We still need to do some parental disciplining, sure. But you speak to their identity and separate behavior from identity. Otherwise, they're all going to hear it mixed up that their identity and behavior is the same. I'm not good enough. I'll never measure up. I'm a sinner because I always sin. Awful terminology. Awful. This is from the book Beyond an Angry God. It's no wonder the older brother of the prodigal son storms out of the house, irked and sulky. 
We can talk about how self-righteous he was all we want, and technically we wouldn't be wrong about it, but let's be honest. Anybody with the slightest sense of fairness would have felt the same way. Some things just aren't fair. And that's the point. Fairness suffocates to death for lack of oxygen in the grace-saturated environment of unconditional love. Fair? The father might have asked, are you nuts? This is my son. He's come home. It's not about fair. It's about love. The older brother, my friend Lonry from Winnipeg, wrote about this uh, probably 10 years ago. And he made some observations about this other son. Stuff we probably haven't even looked at because we've always seen him as the good one and the prodigal was the bad. But hang on, I think there's a swaparoo that's required here. Or if nothing else, at least let's see it, see both sides very well. The moral superiority as he's compared to his worthless, or compared to his worthiness to the prodigal's unworthiness. He puts into a, a, a big problem in his mind and in his terminology. And we've done that in our culture today. It's called us versus them. Exclusion, inclusion. The moment we create division and compartmentalize people, we have already created a cardinal sin. Feeding this thing called separation and dualism. The older brother's nothing like his father. He thought he was. I've done all this for you. I've done everything you asked. No, It's his father who's full of compassion and mercy. The son is not. His brash speech reveals a profound sense of entitlement. He did not serve and obey his father out of love, but but rather out of what he stood to gain. This requires a harsh personal introspection. In the church world, unfortunately, we have set ourselves up to to... to serve God for rewards. How many times have you and I been told, we're doing this for the kingdom. I'm doing this for my jewel on my crown. I'm doing this for my crown. How many have heard that language before? Some of you? Yeah. What are you talking about? Last time I read, we take them all off anyway and put them before Christ. So what's the point? It's not about comparing crowns and, oh, but I'm getting a mansion. And, you know, well, I'm getting a little shack because I didn't do well enough. Well, I'm getting the mansion because the more I do for God, the more and bigger amenities I'll get and the upgrades. And we think we're building our own kingdom in our head by all we do. Does that stop us from doing good? No. But our, if our motive is doing it to get, we have missed the point completely. And we have every reward already received because it was never done from the pure love of Christ in us. We've got to be careful about our motive. He kept a meticulous record of what he has been doing for his father. He tried to reduce the father-son relationship to a system of rewards in exchange for services rendered. Ouch. Consequently, his attitude put him on the level of employee rather than son. He cited his own goodness just as the Pharisees trusted their own righteousness. Imagine that. That's the same prayer that the uh, prodigal son came home with, "Uh, if I could just be a servant. Well, the other one, even though he was a son, was acting like a servant. He missed it. He missed the relationship. 
Oh, by the way, keeping a record? Not only of what he'd done, but he kept a record of his brother's wrongs too. Do you remember 1 Corinthians when it talks about love? What is love? Love is patient, love is kind. That one line, love, and by the way, God is love, keeps no record of wrongs. And here, he meticulously keeps one of his brother's wrongs and all of what he thinks is right. Hmm. The older brother's attitude revealed that he had not served the father for love, but rather for the things that, serve, uh, that serving him produced. If relationships with his father had been the real desire of the older brother, then he would have rejoiced to see his father's joy at the return of his son. This means the father didn't know his, sorry, the son didn't know his father. Or he would have known his heart. Oh, maybe, wait, maybe, just maybe, he did know his father's heart and was ticked. Maybe he knew his father was a gracious one and stomps his feet and goes, that's just not fair. <laughs> Do you remember the stages of growth in John, 1 John 2, I think it is? Child, young adult, adult. wonder which stage this older brother is at. <laughs> I think he just revealed it. Beware of the pointing finger of the older brother. Next time you come across one of the prodigal sons, the ones you judge as prodigal, remember the love of your father and treat them with love and mercy as your father would. Repentance and forgiveness will always give birth to an authentic father-son relationship based on grace. That's good. Finally, the father's explanation that he had to celebrate, left the older brother with a decision, either to continue in his own brand of rebellion or repent and join the celebration. This story ends with the father outside the party with his son, called the darkness. That's where the father goes, oh, the first parable, the sheep. He goes after the one. The people are partying inside, and the shepherd goes and gets the one who is lost, the real lost son. Both sons were lost, really. But now there's only one son lost, and the father goes out. This reveals a character of who God is. God is not angry. If he is angry at anything, please listen to this carefully. Because somebody can say, well, you can't say God's not angry. Okay, I'll say this. God's not angry at you. If anything that he's angry at, he's angry at things that harm his children. That's what he's angry at with a full vengeance. But you? Oh, he loves you. Fully accepts you. And wants you to know how he perceives you. Once you begin to believe how God really sees you, God knows it'll totally change you from the inside out. That's why all the rules don't help you become righteous. I know some churches have lists of rules. If you're going to be part of this church, you must follow these rules. And I got lists. I found some really scary lists. Even pointing out how long your hair should be and what kind of clothes you wear and people you associate with and things you can't do out on a Friday night. All those kind of weird rules. Those don't help you become righteous. They actually take you away because they're taking your eyes off the love of God and put you onto some rules, man-made ones. Let's direct people to the love of the Father. Let's actually be the love of the Father so people can recognize God is love and people who say they're part of the church look like the love of God. 
There's a party. At the end of those stories, there's a celebration. How would you like that in your mind when you're afraid of repenting about something or afraid of going and approaching God with something you're struggling with and embarrassed, oh, I can't bring this to God. If you know there's a party at the end of your confession, oh my goodness, go for it. And there is. There is. <laughs> Sometimes that's hard to believe. 2 Corinthians 5.19, I'm going to read from two translations. I'm not making this up. In other words, God was using Christ to restore his relationship with humanity. He didn't hold people's faults against them. And he has given us this message of restored relationships to tell others. When or what? He never held people's faults against them. We hold people's faults against each other. Guess what? That's not Jesus. Nor does it look like Jesus, nor do you represent Jesus when you do that. You represent flesh, ego, darkness. That's not God. This is God. This is your Heavenly Father before you even had a chance to pray or repent or anything. Passion Translation says, in other words, it was through the anointed one that God was shepherding the world, not even keeping records of their transgressions. And he has entrusted to us the ministry of opening the door of reconciliation to God. The gospel is not, hey, Jesus died for your sins. The gospel is, that's all done, and now everything's been reconciled. Now, be reconciled. The work of restoring relationship has now been done, which was whatever was blocking our ability to have a relationship with God is now made available. That's the declaration. That's the good news. He's done all this stuff. The good news is, now, I'm going to tell you God's crazy about you. Be reconciled. Be what has already taken place. Enter into what is already been done. Believe it. Agree with God. Confess. Agree with God. Robert Capon says this. Grace is the celebration of life. Relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world. <laughs> I love that. It is a floating cosmic bash shouting its way through the streets of the universe, flinging the sweetness of its castations to every window, pounding at every door in a hilarity beyond all liking and happening until the prodigals come out at last and dance. And the elder brothers finally take their fingers out of their ears. <laughs> That's grace. I love that definition of grace. I haven't seen that for years. So to come across that again yesterday, I was like, yes, that's so cool. Brendan Manning says, my message, unchanged for more than 50 years, is this. God loves you unconditionally. As you are, and not as you should be, because nobody is as they should be. Further, he writes, my life is a witness to grace that amazes as it offends. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day the same wage 
as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 to 5. <laughs> a grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck towards the prodigal, reeking of sin and wraps him in, and decides to throw a party. No ifs, ands, or buts. A grace that ri raises bloodshot eyes to the dying thief's request, please remember me, and assures him, you bet! A grace that is the pleasure of the Father, fleshed out in the carpenter Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who left his Father's side, not for heaven's sake, but for our sakes, yours and mine. His grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap. It's free. And as such will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot <laughs> and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Grace is sufficient. Even though we huff and puff with all our might to try and find something or someone it cannot cover, grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. Ooh, that's good. I'm going to stop there because uh, I think I'm overflowing the cup. <laughs> like pouring it. This is so much good news. And I know we still got time, but so what? We end early. Do I get a bonus for that? <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us who needed to be reminded of what your grace is, even to chuckle along or be reminded, oh, do that this morning. Unseat us from our complacency. Shake us loose from our running to our little cubby holes because we're scared and we want a theology that is simpler with less mystery. Suck us into the mystery so that we stay teachable, less dogmatic, more free, and become more of a reflection of Christ in us by being more loving. Thank you, Father. Amen. Oh, that was the last slide. Oh, that's cool. Hey, that was good. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thanks for coming in person. Um, and I only had half a cup of coffee, so... <laughs> Don't forget your online donations. Don't forget to register next Sunday. And if you want to come to our movie night, please pre-register. Uh, it's only in two weeks. So uh, once it's full, it's full. So that'd be great. Thank you again. Hope you have a great week. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks for watching.